Well, last Sunday morning, we, um, we had an exciting time together. Remember, my microphone was acting up. Hopefully, it's not going to happen today, right? But you, ever, you know the story of Mary and Martha, right? In the New Testament, Mar- Martha's always worrying about everything. And I had so many people come up to me after the service and say, Oh, Lou, so, you know, feel so bad about the microphone or whatever. You know what? North Americans have low tolerance for things that don't go right. But I can remember being at a meeting in Tajikistan, Dushanbe. Those of you who want to look it up on the map, it's kind of right next to Afghanistan. You know, you know where that is, kind of down and under Afghanistan. It's, um, let's just say it's light years away from Oak, Oakville. Okay. And, um, in the middle of a communion service, there must be probably 50 people in a room that would handle 20 normally. And electricity isn't reliable and the lights went out. And somebody just took a cigarette lighter and we went on. Nobody asked him if he smoked, I don't think. Um, just went on. A couple of years ago, I was in Egypt and uh, we were speaking. Got up in the morning and they came running to the room. Lou, Lou, you got to pray. Come on, you got to pray. And I was going, so we go over to another person's room and there's a woman who obviously is under deep oppression by the devil. And we spend a couple hours praying. Then it's time for the service. We start the service, and another woman, it's the same problem. We're praying with her, and then you get preaching, and a wind comes up and blows over the screen, and the PowerPoints are shot, and it's, you know what? It doesn't make any difference. Okay? In the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference. Anytime you speak about the devil, anytime you speak about sin, you expect trouble. Okay? So... We have more trouble today. Don't worry about it. God's good. We're going to keep motoring along, and we'll see what God has to say for us. Now, I have to admit, we've been in Genesis three now for several weeks. The first three chapters of Genesis, and I got to tell you that I think Genesis three is one of the most depressing chapters in the entire Bible. I mean, there is devastation and destruction everywhere, and I suspect that if Dickens was writing about this, he would say this is the worst of times. You remember old Madame Dufarge knitting away, and this was the best of times, it was the worst. This is the worst of times. Chapter starts bad, and it just gets worse. Okay? But you have to understand, this chapter is tremendously foundational to us who are believers. This chapter is foundational, it is pivotal truth. And when I say that, what I'm saying is this, it explains to us what happened and why it happened and why we find ourselves in the situation in which we are today. Adam and these sins had profound effect. It really did have a profound effect. And the profound effect that it had was that it taught us that life is a battle. It just battle. You remember Adam was battling. They had passed on sin. They had passed on death. That is Adam and Eve. They're living under these things and they're beginning a battle. And so it is that Adam, the man who was at rest and everything was working for him, all of a sudden is in a fight for existence. He's working, working, working. And the prospect he has before him is death. This is classic existentialism in the first few chapters of Genesis. Life is absurd. 
and he battles through. And it's not just that, it's, it's the battle of relationships. We look at Eve, this woman who is created to be fit for Adam, perfect harmony, an e-harmony relationship. It couldn't get any better. And then all of a sudden it got very much worse. And you find that there's this battle between them as they're blaming one another. They're blaming God. They're living in shame. I mean, it's, it's a nasty situation. And then, of course, there's the battle of good and evil. All of these things taking place, all of these things passed on to you and me, the death and sin. I recognize when I speak about sin, there are people who look at me and say, oh my goodness, it's the 21st century. Hasn't he ever studied social sciences? We don't use the word sin anymore. We use the word challenges. He has some challenges in his life. There's room for improvement. You know, you know the, the, the language that we use now. Or he's suffering from some syndrome. We can't just say he's a sinner. We have to call him a sociopath or a psychopath. Or We, we have a whole new vocabulary to replace what Christians used to just describe in one word, sin. Adam and Eve passed on sin, and they passed on death. And what I was trying to show you last week is that sin is both powerful and pervasive. I don't need to tell you that. I mean, you don't believe me? Ask Peter. He thought he had sin beat, but he didn't. Ask Thomas. Same thing. Ask the Apostle Paul. Same thing. And look in your own life whenever you decide to stand up or to get serious about your Christian faith and say, you know what, I'm really going to follow God. At that time, the devil rears his ugly head and you're in a battle like you never knew before. It's really tough to be a righteous person. Sin is powerful and sin is pervasive. But sin is not the end of the story. It doesn't get the last word. And so you remember last week, as we looked at the third chapter of Genesis, we saw that in this chapter, there were two clues to the fact that sin wasn't going to be the defining uh, issue in the result of what was going to take place. Two things happened. The first was that, that God actually moved Adam and Eve out of the garden, and he moved them out of the garden so that they wouldn't be able to get to the tree of life. He didn't want them to get to the tree of life so that they could, what should we say, eternalize or perpetuate or just continue going down a path that was totally opposed to God. It's an act of grace. Yes, it's an act of punishment, but it's an act of grace as well. It is, I got a fan blowing here or something. Okay, there we are. It's, what did I say, right? Relax, we're good. Okay. God's not going to let that happen. God's not going to allow it to come to the place where humanity cannot be changed. And he does a second thing. You remember that he makes a promise. And the promise that he makes is that there would come a son, a child, And that child was going to crush the head of the devil. And what we need to know today is that that son actually has come. 
That son is Christ. That son has come. And as we started looking at the son, all of a sudden we began to see that in the son, there was hope. Because when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you see the possibility of paradise, right? All of the things, nature is against Adam, but it's not against Jesus. Jesus goes out, he walks on water. Jesus goes out, the disciples are fearing for their lives. Remember, they're, they're in a boat, they're crying, they're actually mad at Jesus. Don't you care that we perish? Jesus says, be still. We're not sure whether he's talking to the disciples or the sea. But I th- think it was the sea, because the sea became calm. Incredible power over nature. He takes five loaves and two little fish, and he's able to feed multitudes. This is incredible. He's got power over nature. He's got power to restore relationships. Everywhere you go in the gospel, Jesus is restoring a broken relationship. He's bringing Gentiles into the kingdom. He's taking lepers, cleansing them, sending them back into the community. He's taking tax collectors who are the vermin, the most hated of their society, restoring them and and healing them. He's taking Samaritans and doing incredible things with them. Restored relationship after restored relationship after restored relationship. And then when it comes to battling with evil, You remember the question of the disciples. Who did sin, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, this isn't about sin at all. This is about the glory of God. He's here for this very moment. The man's sight is healed. And you see Jesus going throughout the Gospels. He's giving sight to the blind, the lame walk. Those who can't hear, hear. Those who can't speak, speak. And it doesn't stop there. He has power over death. I love it, don't you? Walks up to a casket. There's a dead son. Touches him, speaks. The child lives. Walks into a room where there's a daughter, an only child, because she's in the book of Luke. Jesus speaks to her, Talith Kum, and she comes back to life. Goes and stands in front of a grave and he speaks. Lazarus come forth and Lazarus comes out of the grave. See, death is no, no problem for Jesus. And it's not even just that. It's the devil. In fact, every time the devil see Jesus, they get different. Jesus, holy one of God, are you going to destroy us? And you see story after story after story in the Gospels of how Jesus speaks and someone who has been under the power, someone who has been under the authority of demons is released. And even in the time of Jesus' own temptation, the devil can't get the upper hand. You get what I'm saying? See? Christ... Christ is God and Jesus is the possibility of paradise started over. Now think of it this way. You might be saying, well, you know, that's Jesus. He would do stuff like that. No, he should do stuff like that. Okay? He's the Son of God. And as we begin thinking about what I want you to recognize today is that to get to paradise, you have to go through God. And I want to start talking about starting over. And when I first spoke on this 
uh, series. I first started the series. Shirley Buchanan sent me a note and said, Lou, it, it sounds like we're, we're starting over. And I said, you know what, Shirley, that's a good message. I'm going to use that for the fourth message in the series. And she said, good, you go ahead. I'm not going to be here. Or something like that. And, you know, she's in Chile at this moment. Praise God that they're down there having a great time. But I want to talk about starting over. And it is all about starting over. What happens in Genesis 3 is not the end. There is a new beginning that you can have. There's a new beginning that I can have. And I want us to look at that today. And I want you to go to the Gospel of John in your mind and to think about starting over. Because here's where it begins. John says this about his gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Many other things did Jesus that are not recorded in this book. John is saying, you know what? Jesus did an incredible amount of things. He he did so many things you can't even imagine it. They're not recorded in this book. But these things, these very things are written that you might believe that the Christ is Jesus. And that believing you might have life through his name. And then Jesus begins saying some things in John's gospel. There are seven statements in John's gospel, actually eight, that all start the same way. I am. They're incredible statements. Because when Jesus uses this phrase, or this, these words, I am, every Jewish person listening to him recognizes he's talking about God. That's God's name, right? Remember God said to Exodus, when Moses said, Hey, who shall I say sent me? God says, you tell them, I am sent you. And now Jesus begins speaking. In chapter 9... Uh, Jesus says this in chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus says this, I am the, day, the gate, I'm the door. Whoever enters in shall find life. And he will go in and he will go out and he will find life everlasting. And then Jesus picks up, if you will, a little bit from that. He intensifies the statement over in John chapter 14 and verse 6, where he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. There is one way to paradise. I'm the way. One way. Of course, that's not a very Canadian statement to make. We're into pluralism. We are into inclusivism. Jesus isn't. Because in case you missed the point in John's gospel, you can't miss the point in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, Broad is the gate. And wide is the way that leads to destruction. And many go down that road. Alternatively, narrow is the gate, straight is the way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Christ is the one way to paradise. And here's the deal. You can't play God and enter into paradise at the same time. 
That's the exit strategy. You want to get out of paradise? That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Remember, all of a sudden, they wanted paradise, but they also wanted to be God. They weren't quite sure God got it right, so they thought they'd kind of take over for him. You can't have God, be God, and have paradise at the same time. That's what we need to understand here. No idolatry allowed in this place. So you come to the gate. And when you enter the gate, all of a sudden, things begin to happen. That's where it all begins. When you come to Christ, when you come to God, and you humbly submit to him and say, okay, I'm entering the entry point. I'm coming through the gate. This is where it all begins. That's why I'm calling it starting over. But let's remember a few things. Let's go back to the story of Adam and Eve, and let's remember what they were. I mean, question, how does it work? We're going to ask now, what were they? What were they? Well, they were in God's presence. They were in God's image. They were under God's instruction. They were at rest. They were naked and not ashamed. You have those things because it's important to have those things clearly in your mind. They were in God's presence. They were in God's image. They were under God's instruction. They were at rest. They were naked and they were not ashamed. And in one chapter, all of that changed. When you come to the end of chapter three, exactly the opposite is the case. They are out of God's presence. They no longer bear resemblance to God, but devil. They are not under instruction. They don't want to hear what God has to say. They are not at rest and they're covered. That's where the story really begins. And so reverse the curse begins when you enter the gate. And here's what happens when you come to the gate and you say, okay, Jesus, I'm at the gate. My crown is off. Your crown is on. You're king. I'm servant. What happens? Here's what happens. The first thing that happens is you get Rescued. I love this verse. This is one of my absolute favorite verses in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. That's a great verse. It would be a whole lot better if they actually translated it the way it really is. Because this is the anemic version of what the text really says. If you study, if you looked at it in the Greek, here's what it says. He himself, the middle voice in the Greek, which emphasizes who did it. He himself rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. And he brought us, I don't like that word, transferred us once for all. It's Aris action. Did it once for all into the kingdom of the son he loves. It's incredible. He, he rescued you and he put you in the kingdom. And I want you to understand something today. It doesn't stop with that verse. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 gives this incredible description of the human being. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are in sin. By the time you get to verse 4, you have been made alive in Christ. Paul would say over in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 27, Christ in me. 
the hope of glory. (laughs) It's an incredible thing. These two little words in the New Testament, in Christ, are powerful words. You need to look at them. As, As a sinner... You have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. I, I was going to put up a picture of a cat with a kitten because that's kind of, you know, you know how cats kind of, when their kittens get in danger, you kind of grab them by the nap of the neck and drag them to a safe place. That's what we're talking about. Okay. God came and snatched us out of a scary place and puts us in a safe place. We were in sin. We are in Christ. Romans chapter five. We were in Adam. We are in Christ. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But it's not just that we're in Christ. Something else happens. Christ comes into us. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says this, what? I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ is in me. And it's not just Christ who is in me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not just that we're indwelled by God. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. And it's not just that Christ is in us. God the Holy Spirit is in us too. So when you go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, you get this tremendous verse. And you who are included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. When you became a believer... God wants to mark you as a bona fide child. He literally wants to give you, if you will, adoption papers, the real deal, so that when God looks down from heaven and he is looking throughout the world and he looks to see who are his bona fide, who are his authentic children, what he looks for is the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you are the authentic thing. And if you don't, you're not. What's Paul say in Romans chapter 8? For as many others and dwell by the Spirit of God are the children of God. First Corinthians 6 verse 19. Do you not know, says the Apostle Paul, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You understand what I'm saying? That we as believers, when we come to God and we are rescued, two things happen that reverse the curse. What happens is we are placed in Christ and Christ is placed in us and we are restored to the presence of God. That's stage one. What you're going to see today is that the whole of the Bible is about this process of restoration. But that's only the beginning, right? Stage one is God's presence. But if you remember correctly, Adam and Eve, when we last left them, are covered and hiding and arguing and they're ashamed. It's an absolute mess. Most people are familiar with the story in John chapter 8. I love the story. Maybe you do too. Some scholars argue it's in place. Some not, that is out of place. Some it's legitimate. Some it's not. It's, you can get in all sorts of theological arguments in, in the first 
12 verses of John's Gospel. But the story is about a woman. A woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She is brought to Jesus, literally. It seems she would be dragged to Jesus, thrown in the dirt before him. Just a disgusting woman in the sight of these self-righteous individuals. We know the story, right? Jesus writes in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. Some people think he's listing their names and writing their sins, and it's getting really a nervous situation. So one by one, the, the older guys in this case, by the way, were the smartest. That's why I like the text, right? The old guys left first before it got really difficult. That's what it says. One by one, the witnesses left from the oldest to the youngest till finally standing with Jesus is this woman, only this woman and Jesus. And Jesus says something very, very interesting and profound. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. She come in shame and she's forgiven. It's not just that story. If you continue reading in John chapter 8... The Jews have been under slavery for years and years and years and years. They're also living in denial for years and years and years. But they're in slavery. And Jesus says something to them that they really need to hear. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. You're free. Paul understands something of this. You have to picture the Apostle Paul. He's described in Acts chapter 8 as a a wild boar rooting around in a vineyard. He is tearing up the church. He cares nothing for Christians. He cares nothing for Christian families. He cares nothing for Christian children. They're better dead in his mind, and he will see as many of them. He was consenting when we first saw him to Stephen's death, and he's consenting to more deaths. And then, he meets Jesus. And then, this murderous killer of Christians, murderous killer of God's saints, says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And he doesn't stop there. Romans chapter 5, he says something else. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I've got peace. You know what? Isn't that incredible? Forgiveness, freedom from sin, no condemnation, peace. But the New Testament goes either further. The book of Hebrews, I love the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 9 of Hebrews, we're told that Christ goes by his own blood into the very holy place. And in that holy place, he purchases eternal redemption for us. And this eternal redemption purges not just our sins, but our consciences. So that we are free to serve the living and the true God. And all of a sudden, you realize that what God wants for the believer, what Christ wants for the believer, is that we live in 
no shame. Forgiven. How many of us fight this in our lives over and over? The guilt that the devil wants to bring, the shame that the devil wants to bring. And and we need to be saying these words that I'm talking about this morning. We're forgiven, 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 forgiven. If the Son has set you free, you are free. Indeed, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, that's, that's stage two. There's no shame. We're on our way back. When we left Adam and Eve in the garden, there was, there was another difficulty, and that difficulty was Adam is working, he's working, he's working, he's working. They're not just working at eating, they're working at trying to make their own way in the world because they cut themselves off from God and they're trying to make themselves right and prove that they're good. How many people do you know who are trying to do this very same thing, who are trying to work their way back to God? To prove they're righteous, to prove they're holy, to prove they're just. You know what? You can't do it. If you're the problem, you can't fix the problem. We're working and working and working. Trying to be good little girls and good little boys. So that God will say someday, yeah, you tried hard, you did okay. It's not enough. It's nowhere near enough. When Jesus looks out at humanity, he says what? Come to me, all of you who labor. Okay, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love the way the author of the book of Hebrews puts it. He says what? That there is a rest for us. Enter into that rest. And yet so many believers... Struggle. Working, working, working. By the works of the law shall no man be justified. It's not going to work. That's why the New Testament is filled with verses like this, like Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and that not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or over in Romans chapter 3, Paul's talking about the fact in Romans chapter 3 that there's not one that does good, no, not even one. We are all sinners. How are we ever going to solve the problem? Paul says there's good news, there's a righteousness, and this righteousness comes apart from the law as a righteousness of God which has been made, low, uh, been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify that righteousness is given through faith in Christ to all who believe. I want you to understand something today. I missed it on the slide before, but I don't want to miss it now. When Jesus hung on a cross, and he said, it's finished, that's exactly what he meant. It's done. There is nothing you can do There's nothing any priest can do. There's nothing collectively together that we can do. It 
is absolutely done. We're always trying to do something. We're always trying to appease God. We're always trying to make up to God. We can't do anything. It is by grace. And by grace alone. And all of a sudden, we can rest. We can rest. And we can do what we did this morning as we look back at what Christ did on the cross. We rest in that. We put faith in that. You remember Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had thought that God actually didn't get it right. Isn't that where the difficulty starts? You really sure, God, that if we eat of that tree, we're going to die? Are you really sure about that? Because the devil doesn't think so, and it doesn't really make sense, because if we eat of that tree, we're going to look more like you, and blah, blah, blah. And on and on the story goes. And they slide out from under God's instruction. But when you come back to Christ, as we've noted, something happens. And the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life. And we like to talk about all of the really, really neat things the Holy Spirit does, like speaking in tongues and healing and transporting people miraculously here and there and whatever. And sometimes we miss the clear teaching about the Holy Spirit. We really need to understand. And some of the very last words that Jesus gave to his disciples were these. John repeats it three times in three chapters the night before his death. When I leave, I'm going to send a comforter. What's the comforter going to do? The Holy Spirit. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and he will remind you of everything that I have spoken. What's he going to do? He's going to remind us of what Jesus taught. What else is he going to do? Well, 26 verses later, just another shot here, we get a similar story. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth that goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And now we're only like eight verses after that. And when the Spirit has come, when the Comforter has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe, of righteousness because I go to my Father, of judgment because the Prince of this world is judged. He had been confusing everybody for years and years. And when the Holy Spirit comes, what's He do? He convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of apokrinomai in the Greek the ability to discern, to discriminate between that which is good and that which is evil. Takes the confusion away in our lives. We're told in the first chapter of Second Peter that holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's not just the Holy Spirit. It is the Word of God as well. All Scripture, says Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped to every good work. And by the way, if you want to learn about the Word of God, 2 Timothy is a great book to go to. 
Second Timothy 2.15. I, I got it memorized a different way in my mind, so I'm going back here to read these things so we're on the same page. If I want to do it my way, right? Give diligence to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Second Timothy 2.15. It's this way in the NIV. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. You see what's happened? The believer is back under instruction. That's step four. Okay? We're in God's presence. No shame, at rest, under God's instruction. Only one more step to go. There's something going on in your life. As the Holy Spirit of God is in your life, as Christ is in your life, as the Word of God is in your life, you're being changed. Jesus prays in John chapter 17 and verse 17, Father, Make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. It cleanses us. How, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways, asked the psalmist, by taking heed to the word of God. But, but listen to this. Second Corinthians 3.18 And we all who with unfailed vases contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is in the Spirit. When we are contemplating, when we are focused on Christ, when we are meditating on Christ, when we are thinking about Christ, when we're spending time in the Word, something is happening in us. We are moving, yes, from faith to faith, but more than that, this text, from glory to to glory. We're taking on the resemblance of Christ, and this shouldn't surprise us. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says what? We know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then we know why. Because whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Christ is in the work of conforming you, Romans 8.29, to his personage. And all of a sudden you see we've come full cycle. Everything that went wrong in Genesis 3, Christ is reversing. We're now being remade in the image of Christ. We're back in his presence. And no shame, at rest, under his instruction, in his image. All starts, of course, with entering at the gate. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And you're going to say something to me today like, Lou, I really like this message. Well, maybe you won't say that. And it doesn't make any difference. You might say, you know what? I'm a long way from being there. I'm a long, long way from being there. When you talk about in God's presence, no shame, at rest, under his instruction, reflecting his image, I got a lot of work to do. Welcome to the club. 
Okay. We all have a lot of work to do. Notice what I, I put up here. I said the curse is being reversed. Ah, that's the key issue. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 8. He says everything, everything is waiting for the conclusion of this. He says creation groans. Certain Romans chapter 8 verse 19. Creation groans. The Holy Spirit groans. The believer groans. Why? Because we know there's more. We just know there's more. We are waiting for the completion of the task. And here's the good news. The task is going to be completed. I love the promise in Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you is going to perform that work until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't it good news to know that God hasn't stopped and he's not going to stop? We have been predestined. A lot of people don't like that word, but it's a really good word here. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Paul says, you know what? You only have the first fruits. I didn't get to get, taste that cake Mike was talking about. I'm sorry I couldn't be here for that. But I want to spare any of you from watching me skate. <laughs> and actually protect my health at the same time. Okay. But I'll tell you what. We just got a taste of the good stuff. We just have the first fruits. We have the first fruits and we have a promise. And that promise can simply be summed up in this. There's a whole lot yet to come. But we're in the right place for it to happen. Father, we just pray that you would help us to enjoy the fact that all of those things that stood against us, all of those things that frustrated Adam and Eve, Christ has reversed. The process has begun. And we look forward to the day of its completion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to talk about next week. We've got to finish because the end of the show is going home, right? When you finally get the full biscuit, we're not done yet. We just started. If you're here today and you've never really started on that journey, I want to remind you of the fact Jesus said, you know what? I'm the gate. You want that kind of life? Enter here. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Once you step through that gate, the process of restructuring, renewing begins and your life changes. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you to do it today. There'll be men at the front of the uh, sanctuary who want to pray with you if you want to talk with somebody. Or you can just catch me and I'll be happy to talk with you. Somebody wants to share with you.
how this can happen. But mostly it's just simply you saying to God, I want that. I don't exactly know what I want, but I want that. And then the journey begins and you find out what it really is. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just thank you today that we could be in your house. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the scriptures which are so incredibly encouraging. Forgiven. Free. No condemnation. Peace. Cleansed consciences. Christ in us. How much better can it be? And we hear you say, I hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard what's restored in heaven, what's stored in heaven for those who love you so much more. We thank you for that. As we leave here today, help us to live godly, holy, exemplary lives in our community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.